Welcome to Don't Read Drunk, a podcast about books and booze. I'm Jenny, and I'll be your host. Hi, welcome back. We're on episode 59 today and talking about These Violent Delights by Micah Nemerever. Not to be confused with These Violent Delights by Chloe Gong, which is the mistake that I first made when this book was recommended to me and I looked it up. I was like, this book doesn't sound like the book that was recommended. Are we sure this is the right book? And then I finally figured it out and I actually got the correct book. So thankfully I did. Just a heads up, if you're interested in either one of those books, I'm pretty sure if you pick the opposite, you're going to be severely disappointed. This recording has already been a challenge for me today. I think I'm on like take seven. And also the pug and I are totally at odds today. He's snoring especially loud today and just keeps messing up all of my recordings. (laughs) So we're going to try to get through this one. I've been stumbling over words. It's just one of those days already for me. Anyways, this was another one of those heavy and incredible novels. This makes three books in a row where I've been able to read and review some brilliantly written, but just soul-scorching books. And I do hesitate to say this, but I think October 22 might be the best month ever for reading good books. I've had some years where I've gone back and looked over my books read list for the year and thought, damn, I have really read some good books this year. How is next year ever going to compare? There's no way this next year is going to be as good, but it almost always is as good. And this past month, this month has been just so incredible for reading. And I don't know if I can top it. It's been really intense, but it's also been really great. After this one, though, I definitely need a break from the heaviness. The quality of these three books has been really incredible, but I will say it's taken a toll on me emotionally and I need a bit of a break. Even just working on this script for this episode was just really emotionally draining and I was really tired and I needed to like quit writing a couple times (laughs) because just even talking about this book, thinking about this book, reading about this book, it's just, it's really heavy. And of course, I didn't give myself a break this weekend, finish this book, as well as watch some very intense TV too. It is the season of darkness, but it's also a good reminder that we need to balance the darkness and the light, which is what I've been doing the past couple of days with my son. We've been playing this new game called Flux, which I highly recommend. There's like 20 different types of Flux card games, and they're just so much fun. I think I've mentioned we really like board games and card games, so we try new games as often as we can. And this is a good one. We've been playing it almost nonstop for the past few weeks. It's getting darker out. This morning, both the boy and I were up and out and about before the dogs, And usually they get up when we get up, but they both stayed snuggled in their blankets until about 7 a.m. when I went up to actually get them up and get them outside. And I also am sad to report that I did have to turn my heat on. (laughs) I let the house get down to 55, though, and I had a repair guy over who needed me to turn it on and make sure it was working. So I did turn it on and I left it on. It has been pretty cold here, but I didn't wait as long as I wanted to. 
I do think that I waited as long as I could. And I guess I don't feel too terribly bad about it. (laughs) As far as the booze this week, I went off my normal favorites a little bit because I felt like this was the right drink and the right fit for this book. There's a part in the book where Julian and Paul are separated and Julian says he's drinking a horse's neck. And this popped out to me as a lot of drinks do when I'm reading a book, because since I started the podcast, sometimes I want to pick a drink that they talk about in the book. And as I'm reading the book, I'm thinking about what is a good match for this book. So sometimes I make a note of the drinks that I read about just to make sure I want to use that or think about if I want to use that. But with this one, I had to look it up right away, partially because it was such a unique name for a drink and partially because I wanted to envision the scene even more clearly. And I guess maybe it's not that unique of a name. I mean, when I think about it, there's names like grasshopper and stuff like that. I'm just not really like a a mixed drink kind of person anymore. I guess I was kind of when I was, you know, younger, I drink a lot of different fruity mixed drinks. So I just thought horse's neck was kind of unique and interesting. And it's not anything that I thought I would like, but it was definitely something I saw Julian drinking and also seemed fitting for the booze this week. So I wanted to give it a try. And as I've mentioned many times, hard liquor is not my favorite. And I didn't really want to buy a whole bottle just to try this drink. So I decided to try it at the bar. I think I've mentioned that I like to go to the bar and read a book, sit and have a couple beers. Sometimes I get dinner. Usually I get something to eat too. And so the bartenders have kind of gotten to know me. They're super sweet and really nice. And when I asked for it, they hadn't heard of it. So we looked it up together. The recipe we used is in the show notes and it was pretty easy. It's two ounces bourbon whiskey, three to five ounces of ginger ale, a dash of bitters and a lemon peel spiral. I definitely asked for more ginger ale than whiskey since I'm not much of a whiskey fan. It was not for me. I can definitely say that. Not really a big ginger ale fan either, but I tried to go into it with an open mind. If you're a whiskey drinker, I would say maybe this might be a good drink. The ginger ale wasn't too sweet and the bitters add an interesting flavor. I am glad I tried it. And so this is our booze of the week, drink of the week. But next week, I'm definitely going back to my typical beer or wine because I much prefer that. (laughs) Going into the author, this is Micah Nemerever's first and only book. I also hadn't heard of it before until recently, so I wasn't really sure what I was going to find out about him. His website is very straightforward and simplistic. Here's his bio from the website. Quote, Micah Never Ever was trained as an art historian. He wrote his master's thesis on queer identity and gender anxiety in the art of the Weimar Republic. He's an avid home chef and amateur historian of queer cinema. After studying in rural Connecticut and Austin, Texas, he now resides in the Pacific Northwest. Micah's work appears or is forthcoming in Slice Magazine, the Carolina Quarterly, Reckoning, and elsewhere. These Violent Delights is his first novel. He also had a section of his website called Outside of Writing. So this is from that. Quote, I love to cook and bake in my spare time. My very favorite thing to do is share food with friends and family, but I also always enjoy exchanging ideas. 
I'm using this page as a repository for recipes I've written just in case anyone else would like to use them. And so I love this detail because I also love to cook and I am definitely going to try his maple pecan coffee cake. Never ever sounds like someone I totally want to add to my list of authors to grab a beer with. I would love to talk not only about the writing, of course, but the cooking as well, since that's definitely something we have in common. So adding Never Ever to my list of authors to have a beer with. Now that he's on the list, I really got to get working on that list. I keep saying that I need to get working on it. And I need to start with J.A. Conrath since he's closest. And I think he might also be the most accessible author since unfortunately, he's totally underrated. Though after this book, I'd also say so as Never Ever. Never Ever did receive some awards for this book. And I didn't write those down. But I will say even sometimes receiving awards, that doesn't always make the book more accessible for people. And since I had never heard of this book, maybe I'm just behind, but I also feel like it's totally underrated. So getting right into the book, I didn't realize until after reading this book, but I wanted to share some of this information up front. Never Ever was inspired by both the Leopold and Loeb case, as well as the Parker Hulm case. And according to Wikipedia, the two main characters' emotional dynamic is similar to that of Parker and Perry, and are even named Paul and Julian after Pauline and Juliet, respectively. This information came out in an interview with Never Ever, which actually was a really great interview and really interesting, and I read that too. So I recommend checking that out, and I did put the link for that in the show notes as well. Never Ever is fascinated by toxic relationships, and that is partially where this book was born from. These Violent Delights is a story of Paul and Julian, the two teenagers meet in college where they have a class together. It's a story of how their obsessive and toxic relationship grows more and more dangerous until it spirals out of either of their control. On the surface, it's a really captivating love story. Though, like we've talked about in the past, and kind of the past two weeks, obsession and need can overshadow the love and become really dark and dangerous. This novel focuses on the intensity in a way that makes you both want this type of love and also be terrified of it. It's the type of love anyone can fall victim to, though Never Ever does it such justice with both Paul and Julian only truly understanding and learning who they are when they find each other. Yet they're too inexperienced to stand alone as separate individuals and become entirely enmeshed in each other. I personally didn't see Let the Right One In as a love story. I never saw Ile and Oscar's relationship in a romantic way that I think some others did and it was talked about, yet never ever writes in a way that I think Lindquist aspired to with Ile and Oscar's relationship. I fell into it so hard and I think I'm going to have to have a talk with my therapist about this because I found it so beautiful and so moving the way never ever wrote their love story. And since I found it so beautiful and moving. I can kind of see where I've been in my own toxic relationships. Though in my toxic toxic relationships, I only kind of craved that type of obsession that Paul and Julian have with each other. 
he didn't actually have that type of obsession. They were kind of toxic in other ways. There are such beautiful moments between Paul and Julian that you sometimes have to remind yourself how toxic they are together. This book is set in the early 70s when, of course, homosexuality was even less accepted than it is now. In my opinion, part of the setup for toxic relationships is when two people can or do feel like it's them and them and their relationship against the world. When they feel everyone is against them, it's easier to become like codependent and rely on each other for your emotional needs. Number of rights of their relationship, quote, all they were, all they ever had been was a pair of sunflowers who believed each other was the sun. And I love this description because in the absence of sun, sunflowers will face each other. And this line to me beautifully showed how dangerously dependent that they were on each other. Julian's family is extremely wealthy, and so they are all the more intent on having him marry well and extinguish any rumors that he's gay. Paul's family, on the other hand, knows he's kind of, quote, weird, pretty much knows he's gay, but tries to accept him as best they can despite wanting, quote, better for him, meaning they don't want him to be gay because they realize how hard life will be for him and how hard life already is for him. I really think Never Ever does an incredible job creating depth in his characters, especially in Paul's family. Julian's family seems a little flat and stereotyped, and they're not really a a huge part of the story. They're involved a little bit, but Paul's family has more character, for lack of a better word. Paul's mom is grieving at the recent loss of her husband, and while some of her grief is familiar, she really works hard at having a relationship with Paul, which sometimes Paul doesn't always see or just dismisses. Here's a small spoiler here, maybe, maybe not, but we learn, I think, about a quarter into the book that Paul's father was gay as well. It's not explicitly said or spelled out, but the reader can definitely understand that he killed himself because he was gay and he couldn't live with his truth any longer. And while it's not also explicitly revealed, it's my interpretation that Paul's mother is aware of this and that while she doesn't support homosexuality, she really doesn't want the same fate for Paul that befell his father. I've said before that as a mother, I often connect more than I used to with the mother figures in novels that I read. I think Never Ever does a phenomenal job with her development. I could really feel her dismay with knowing that Paul and Julian are in love, but the fear due to knowing that they are going to struggle being together in society. She seems sensitive and opens her heart to Julian, attempting to make him feel welcome in her home despite that fear. She, like so many other mothers, are a little blind to their children's struggles, so I also think she doesn't really know how to help her son, and she doesn't know exactly what's going on in his head so that she can try to help him. Never ever states at the end of the book that, quote, this book is fiction, and all fiction is more autobiography than anything else. What the story records, ultimately, is the deep fear that I once carried about my loneliness and what it could do. And that reflection is what leads me to believe that the author poured himself into the characters of Paul and Julian more so than the others, which he talks about in that interview that I was talking about earlier. But the other characters are so well-written that I think it's even more of a testament to his quality of writing. I would have also loved to see more of Audrey, Paul's sister. She's intelligent and observant. She knows more about what's going on than anyone, yet she doesn't interject. 
I feel as though she, like her mother, loves Paul and fears his future loving Julian, not just because of how being queer is viewed at the time, but because she sees the toxicity of Paul and Julian's relationship. Though when you see those you love in a dangerous relationship, it's often really hard to interject. It's not just in the 70s, but even now. So many people, and I have been one of these people, are so blinded by love for another person that they they don't really see how bad the relationship is. I think Audrey also feels by keeping quiet about what she knows and what she sees, she's protecting Paul in the only way that she knows how. And I don't want to gloss over what Nemer ever says about his own fear of loneliness and what that loneliness could do. In the same section following the end of the book, Nemer Nemer ever also states that there's something about, quote, the lonely arrogance of clever young adults. What he does in his development of Paul and Julian is take two misunderstood, lonely, young gay men and throw them together when they are the most vulnerable. Paul is vulnerable due to the loss of his father, the violent incident at his school, and the realization that his extended family thinks he's odd. Julian, he's been under the thumb of his wealthy parents so long that on this urge of manhood, he's realizing that he's still going to be reliant on them since he has no real skills. Both Paul and Julian are above average intelligence, and this is where the Leopold and Loeb case kind of comes in. Spoiler alert here, so jump ahead just a few minutes if you don't want spoilers. Leopold and Loeb believe they could commit the perfect crime because they were so intelligent. Paul and Julian start off fantasizing about killing Julian's parents. And I hate to admit this, but I almost wanted them to, and I almost wanted the book to go in that direction. So I was a little disappointed when it didn't. I was like, oh, what are they going to do now? Even though you kind of get some of that reveal in the beginning. But it's Paul's inner violence that I believe leads them ultimately to the murder. Paul has suppressed these violent urges, but they are there and Julian manipulates them out of him. Though I would like to sit, point out and say that they both manipulate each other. I don't think this is at all like Henry and the secret history where Henry, I feel like, manipulates everyone else around him. Paul and Julian both seem to have toxic and dangerous quality, qualities. It's that they're amplified when they are together and encouraged by each other. Paul is always both shocked and afraid that Julian sees him so clearly. He says, quote, it was a relief and a horror to be known so perfectly. And while I can relate to Paul's mom, there were so many things about Paul I could relate to as well. He's thoughtful, but he's stubborn in his own moral compass. He's 17. So when I look back at my morals at 17, I was much firmer and more unrelenting in my ideas. At that age, you're so certain that you're right. Paul says at one point, quote, I don't worry, I ruminate. (laughs) This made me laugh. And I think I'm going to use this line, though I do worry on top of the ruminating as well. Another quote was, Paul's tongue was too clumsy for wits. And I found that was familiar to me as well. I think I'm intelligent, but I'm not as fast on the wit and the comebacks. Never ever dives into morality with a vivaciousness that is honestly at times over my head. There are parts that I found less interesting because I was so focused on the relationship that I didn't really want to get involved. And I was a little bit, I don't want to say bored, but I was a little bit distracted when it came to the conversations about morality. But it is such an important part of the novel because how Paul and Julian behave 
is based on the morals that they discuss in school with other people in various situations and with each other. It's also these discussions and thoughts of morals that lead to their actions. Never Ever brings up Vietnam and soldiers following orders asking where the responsibility lies. In class, they discuss tests on people and animals and what our moral responsibility is with testing on humans. The message that the author sends in these cases is that people respond to authority over morality. And after much rumination on this particular thought, I would agree that this is true. The writing is so painfully beautiful that it often felt like a physical hurt. It's almost as if Nemer ever realizes this because Julian at one point says, quote, beautiful things are supposed to hurt. Also, so eloquently summing up people's emotional damage, Paul, quote, decided it was better to be angry than afraid. I think so many people block out their true emotions by covering it with something else like another emotion or alcohol or drugs, that they can never recover from the pain because they don't allow themselves to feel and process that emotion. And there are so many beautiful double entendres within the book as well. In one scene, Julian's father is trying to force Paul to eat something that Paul can't eat due to his Jewish faith, doubling for people forcing others to be something that they're not whether it's in their sexuality or in their faith. While this is blatant disregard for Paul's faith, as well as his own personal autonomy, it was also a reference to Paul being something that Julian's father hates and disagrees with. I honestly could have talked about this book a lot longer, and I had so many notes for the script, and this episode could probably be like twice as long as what it's going to be. But it's also just very heavy. And there's also so much to to it that I didn't want to cover everything. And I think that people should really read this book. I vehemently give this a five out of five. Goodreads gives it a 4.04. One reviewer said, quote, exceptionally poorly written, overwrought sentences hanging on what could have been an interesting plot. Stop reading books that claim to be the next secret history. They aren't. So I would also say that I hate when books claim to be the next of X book or a certain type of book because most of the times they aren't. If you want to be this to be the secret history, it's not. I didn't get that comparison, so I wasn't going into it thinking that about that comparison and that this was, quote, the next secret history. It does have similar vibes like the dark academia and the manipulation and the toxicity of others, but it's definitely, in my opinion, not the same. And I think comparing it to the secret history really does this book an injustice as well. Another review, quote, barely plot-driven, very character-driven, but very slow, so twisted and dark AF. And I agree with this. This is part of the reason I, of course, loved the book. They gave it a one star, but this is kind of why I loved it. It's so nuanced and so detailed that it really develops Paul and Julian as people and as very flawed people. Quote, this is a story of obsession, violence, intellect, passion, and cruelty, and it consumed me entirely. Another reviewer said, quote, well, this book absolutely gutted me. (laughs) And I had to share that one because that's exactly how I felt too. Another one was, quote, this was so messed up and exhausting that it took me days to finish, but the writing and execution made it hard for me to DNF. So this took me longer to read than I expected, even though I loved it. 
and it was exhausting. I felt like it was the darkness of the last couple books that I've read combined that mean that's harder to pick up for me, but maybe it just overall is that dark. It seemed to me that kind of the main things that people didn't like were the same things about the last two books that I've discussed. It got long at times, but as always, there are things that the author is telling us during these dragged out moments that I think are worth paying attention to. Overall, I loved it, but I can definitely see where it's a turnoff to some people because it is very dark, it is very heavy, and it is very intense. So media recommendations this week, The Patient on Hulu. (laughs) This was the torture that I did to myself over the weekend. (laughs) And I say torture in the best way because this was very good, but it was also extremely heavy. It wasn't intentional that I watched this show in conjunction with reading these violent delights, but they're both written by people of the Jewish faith, which I thought that was interesting. While there was some commentary that Dr. Alan Strauss was not played by a Jewish actor, I found that Steve Carell was really incredible in the role. He also plays these comedic roles, but he really proved his range with this one. The depth of the writing on this show, too, was great. While I really love reading, there are some great shows out there now that are diving into some serious territory. And while there are some things that can be done in writing that can't really be done for television, there are some things that you can do visually that just can't match writing. And I think this was one of them. I really thought a lot about some of the themes in the show, and I probably could speak another couple minutes about this, but I don't want to give it away either. I highly recommend it, but be prepared for the heavy and look for the depth because the depth isn't always visible upon first glance. It's something you really have to pay attention to. I also needed something fun. So my second recommendation this week is the Witches of East End TV series from 2013. I actually haven't read the books by Melissa De La Cruz, and I've said I prefer to read the book first. But I did watch this when it first came out, and I didn't know that it was based on a book series at the time. It's fun, not too heavy, and perfect for the season. While I love Julia Ormond as Joanna Beauchamp, it's really Mockton Amick who shines as her sister Wendy. There are only two seasons, and while I'm sad it didn't get more, it's definitely a fun show that I revisit every once in a while and good as kind of a palate cleanser and something that's a little bit lighter here. Thank you for joining me this week. You can find me on Instagram at don'treaddrunk, email me at don'treaddrunk at gmail.com, or check out my website at don'treaddrunk.buzzsprout.com. This is a hobby podcast, so if you're interested in supporting me, you can do a one-time donation on PayPal using my email don'treaddrunk at gmail.com. On all of those, there is no apostrophe in the don't. You can also support this podcast by becoming a Patreon at patreon.com slash don'treaddrunk. Thank you to my sponsors, Aaron Ruiz at 1UP Till Sunup, who created the music. You can find 1UP Till Sunup on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok. Also, Avenue Coffee House. You can find them on Facebook and their website at avenuecoffeehouse.com. They also have opened up a new coffee shop, Supernova Donuts and Coffee, which is downtown Milwaukee. They make these amazing homemade donuts. Definitely check them out if you're in the Milwaukee area. Next episode for a little bit of a palate cleanser, we're going to be talking about The Seven and a Half Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle by Stuart Turton.
Bye and talk to you soon. 